Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast again. I am Daniel Day, your host. He is Dr. Byron Klaus. Dr. Klaus, how are you doing today? It's a beautiful day in Oregon. The sun is shining, so all is well with the world. So, <laughs> awesome. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, as we get started, please open us up with prayer. Oh, Lord, this is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you for the beauty here in Oregon, and we ask, O oh Lord, that the beauty of Jesus would be seen in all of us today in these trying times. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Uh, Brother Klaus, listen, before we get into the interview too deeply, why don't you give us a 60-second update on you and your family? How are you guys doing, and what have you been up to lately? Yeah, you know, I think we're, we're just like everybody else. Uh, for me, you know, a lot of my ministry is done over Zoom, and uh, that's a sort of life these days. I am looking forward to uh, being able to do a few more things face-to-face in the next few months. Uh, you know, the, a big thing for me was I had not been on an airplane for 13 months, and I usually fly 75 to 100,000 miles a year. Uh, but last weekend we went down to Houston for my nephew. Uh, he got married, and uh, I it was just it was weird, but it was wonderful. And I, I guess that's a, that's a good sign to me. Uh, you know, people have asked uh, Lois and I. So how, how have you you know you've been married forty nine years? So what's the secret? She says he travels a lot. <laughs> so uh, we're doing well. Uh, the kids are doing well. Uh, I don't know if I told you last time my oldest daughter had a kidney transplant right before the COVID thing hit, and she's doing fine. And we're obviously really grateful to the Lord for that. Awesome. Thank you so much for catching us up. And I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. This is the second time I've had the honor of interviewing you. And for those of you who missed the first discussion, I will put the link to that in our show notes. Uh, Today, though, we are going to be speaking on this topic, and I can't wait to get your input on this. The topic for today's discussion is the impact of culture on the church, more specifically, the negative impact of culture on the church and how the church does ministry. Uh, Dr. Klaus, just open us up, give us your initial feelings and thoughts on this subject and why you believe this is such a vital subject that we need to be talking about today. Well, uh, you know, I I sort of gravitated towards uh, this topic. I just finished teaching a master's level course to a group of pastors here at the Northwest University site here in Oregon. And uh, we did some deep dives into this whole area. One of the uh, quotes that I am always drawn to is by uh, an old British missionary. His name was Leslie Newbigin. And uh, he spent about 40 years in India. And when he returned to England, he realized that the England he had left was not the England he returned to. (laughs) That in a sense, uh, the things that society and its priorities and its values had, had, had shifted considerably. And of course, he had been in a society in India for 40 years where he had been authority and uh, he'd been part of a, a larger pluralistic religious scene. And uh, he actually did his greatest work. In fact, his greatest writing is done after he retires. And one of the quotes that has always impacted me, says this, how is it possible 
that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic or interpreter of the Bible, excuse me, the interpreter of the gospel, is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live it. And that, you know, that really sets a high bar for us. <laughs> that, we, uh, you know, that in a sense, a congregation that says we believe this and acts accordingly becomes in a sense, a neon light to the world that says, this is what the rule of God looks like. And now, you know, we know that it doesn't always work out that way. And anytime we talk about the gospel and culture, we're talking about messiness, okay? And when I use the word gospel, I, I use it generally as a term that it is a truth of eternal consequence, okay? And when I talk about culture, I talk about something that is humanly derived. A human beings, you know, you, you, let, you let human beings go in a, in a situation for a particular period of time, and they're going to create a system uh, that creates structures that helps make life have sense to them. I mean, we all do that, okay? Um, and we can see that God's people have, you know, you go through the Bible. I mean, you don't need to go to sociology first. Just go to the Bible first. And, you know, for instance, the, in Exodus, we see uh, Moses has led God's people, you know, out of Egypt. And if the Egyptians chase him down, uh, the Egyptians are vanquished, and but the people of God are out in the wilderness. And in Exodus 32-33, you see the story of Moses going to the mount to get the Ten Commandments. When he comes back, uh, somehow they have decided that their link to God, being Moses, is gone, and they're going to create some other representation. <laughs> so what do they choose? They choose something from the culture that they had just spent 400 years in, okay, which was Egypt. Uh, you know, and, and Moses goes, I mean, he goes through, <laughs> he has a meltdown, really. And, uh, you know, you look in uh, 33, uh, 15, 16, uh, in Exodus, I mean, he asks this question. So, you know, how is it that we can move ahead without the presence of the Lord? What will distinguish us from all other people on the face of the earth? So here's that question, you know, how, how can how can we, a people of eternity, live in a setting that is temporal? I mean, he asked that question. You can look at Daniel. Daniel's an example uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, he and his three colleagues get captured and put into another culture. Here's, a, here's an example of people who the culture tried to literally shape them in their own mold, but they stood their ground and actually were respected by, you know, uh, several regimes <laughs> that they ultimately served in. We see in the New Testament, we see the interaction that comes to play in Acts 15, where we see, uh, you know, uh, the spirit leading in new directions and basically religious tradition trying to dominate the scene. We can go to Acts 17, 
and we see the the story there of um you know paul and his observation about athens he says you know i i see your religious people but he had, he, he in his sermon he says you know you have tried to shape and understand god by the use of your hands the god that i serve is not shaped by human hands and doesn't need your help to define him so we see you know we see down through scripture that there's always been this interaction between uh the world that we live in with human beings trying to make sense of it and this eternal god who wants to speak to us and wants a people to represent him in this world okay um so you know it, it's always been uh, a tension-filled, messy sort of uh, reality. Um, so that's that's where I start. Another place that I like to start, though, is is I don't look at culture and its interaction with the gospel as negative to start with. And the reason I I don't look at it as negative is. Uh, I don't, you know, when I look at the creation account, I don't start with the fall. I start with creation. There are six days where God says it's good, and the sixth day he creates humanity, which he gives his image to, meaning he can have relationship with that, and he gives instructions for humanity, man is male and female, to have dominion over the world. That is not to conquer it, but to be stewards of it. And so in a sense, the world we live in can actually testify to the glory of God. I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the work of, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach, I mean, you know, it was to God's glory that he wrote his music, art. There's a variety of things that the world has done that in a sense depicts beauty. But the reality is that humanity is fallen and inevitably we're gonna live life on our own terms. And sometimes those terms are destructive to other people. And you know, we don't like other systems, so we knock them down. So that's the world that the church lives in today, okay? Yeah, yeah, so when our ministries, our lives, they do not happen absent of the culture we live in. And culture right. does culture does inform the way that we go about things. However, uh, there are elements of culture that, um, as you're going to get to here in a moment, have uh, infiltrated the way that we do ministry and the way that we bring the eternal gospel to people. And and you're going to you know talk about this more but you believe that to be negative in some respects. Would you unpack that a bit more for us, please? Yeah. Um, you know, there have been uh, movements down through the ages that have attempted to say enough is enough. The Reformation is an example. Uh, you know, that in a sense, religious culture had dominated the truth of only faith, only scripture, only Jesus. And so there was a response to that. Uh, there have been, you know, responses down through the ages. Uh, uh, here in the United States, for instance, 
the main movement against slavery was, you know, led by preachers. <laughs> they, they saw the culture, uh, in a sense, dominating the scene, and they said, no, enough is enough. Uh, we see, you know, we can look at the attempt here in the United States, uh, you know, around prohibition. You know, that was, you know, probably a debacle. But the reality is, is that there was groups of people who were saying, you know, alcohol is destroying this nation. <laughs> Domestic violence and saloons and all sorts of things are destroying this nation. We have got to stop this. Um, more recently, one of the, the groups that I've looked at is a group called the Gospel and Our Culture Network. As a group of Bible-believing Presbyterians out of Reformed tradition who basically said, um, our churches are dying. We're closing more churches than we're opening. Why is that? And they basically came to the conclusion that they had allowed their Christian heritage to be subverted by all the values around them. And that it in, in fact had created what they called Christendom. That people were Christians in name only, but lived their life by their own rules. And they essentially said, we can't have this anymore, and began to take stock of uh, their own lives and how they could reset themselves uh, in this particular place and time. And uh, what they came back to was, in fact, they had a, a book that was written about 20 years ago by one of their leaders called The Continuing Conversion of the Church. And they said, one of the things we've got to look at first is we've got to look at ourselves. We, the, the problem is not first out there. The problem is first with us. We have unwittingly, unknowingly, uncritically allowed the values of self-serving culture to infiltrate our, and we need to repent of that. And so they went through a series of really self-reflective questions that, in a sense, guide their continual reevaluation of themselves. In the corporate world, uh, data is a big thing. And uh, corporations get that data, and then they have what they call a feedback loop. So how do, how do we reset to make sure that we're continuing effectively? Well, that feedback loop for the church is repentance. <laughs> it's it's a reevaluation of, you know, not only have we lost our first love as individuals, but how has the priorities of the culture we live in seeped into the way we've constructed our organizations, constructed the way we treat one another, constructed the way that we treat others outside our organization? So that repentance part, that self-evaluation part, to me, is one of the places we've not been really good at. Yeah. And so because of that... And because of that, I think that it neutralizes our effectiveness in the world. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's a very fascinating thought. The feedback loop um, being, you know, repentance and, and also 
uh, constant reevaluation of, of our own personal lives, our own first love with Christ, and how that is worked out uh, in our public organizations. Do you have one or two specific examples of things you've observed that uh, has eked its way into uh, churches, uh, specifically, um, whether it be Assemblies of God churches, which would be the movement you and I are affiliated sure. with, or other churches you have visited? What, what might be one or two examples that when you go into a church and you go, wow, I, I can really see the thumbprints of culture on this one, and, I, and it's not a good thing. What would be some things that you think we would need to to do some course correcting in. Yeah, I, you know, I think obviously one of the public events, public parts of corporate worship is preaching. And, um, you know, I think that um, all too often uh, we have relegated, you know, in the world of 144 characters tweeting, we're more concerned about uh, slick tweets than we are about the depth of the word. Mm. And so uh, what we have is all too often, and I, you know, I'm, I'm being a bit critical here, but it's all too often true. We have a bunch of um, TED Talks, okay? Mm. You know, they're well-crafted. They've got good points. Uh, but it's a sort of, it's not about what will you do with Jesus. It's about what can we learn from this story? And um, that, you know, smacks of uh, not wanting to offend people. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not, I, mean, I, I don't want to be offensive to anybody. The gospel offends. Okay. The gospel says, no, you got to go another direction. Uh, you're not as big as you think you are. Reevaluate your life. Uh, I don't want to be offensive to people, but I do want to place in front of them uh, something more than simply, uh, you know, stories that have good endings that teach us some lessons. This is about the eternal gospel. So I, I do see in preaching a tendency towards spiritualized TED Talks, okay? Yeah, yeah. And uh, that is, um, that's, that's, that's deadly because, uh, you know, we can create an atmosphere that is culturally understandable through music, through technology, et cetera. And then, you know, we can either present the essence of the gospel in clear, unadulterated forms, or we can go with a TED Talk to sort of complete the morning. And yeah, done with things. And so, so, so let me let me just ask a follow up before you move on, because what you just said is it's a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. It's a pretty big deal. So, in your mind, what's the solution? How do we get preaching back on target? Yeah, I you know I think we need to to look frankly at other traditions. Uh, as Pentecostal preachers, uh, sometimes we have equated uh, great response by people to great preaching. Hmm. And uh, we have, you know, uh, we, we don't read scripture <laughs> and view it as, uh, you know, something sacred, God speaking. I mean, you can go into any mainline denominational church 
and you can see more reading of Scripture in, in one Sunday than many Pentecostal churches have in a month. And they will read Scripture from Old Testament, New Testament, and they always end by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation responds by saying, thanks be to God. So, uh, you know, you can say, well, those are liberal churches. They don't even believe in the Bible. All I'm saying is, <laughs> if in those settings we have more scripture reading than we do in our own churches, then we have an issue. Uh, you know, I think that preaching in, we need to look at other traditions, uh, particularly reformed traditions, views you know, preaching, you go to a Presbyterian church and you have a high pulpit. Now you can look at that, well, that's not what we do. We want to be more personal, et cetera. But what it represents is the fact that God is speaking through a human voice, and we need to hear today. Uh, go into black churches where preaching is an event, and people are constantly involved. I mean, they, they really believe that, that God is with us today. So for me, as a Pentecostal, I frankly, to keep myself sharp and keep myself aware of the centrality of preaching, I frankly have learned from other folks outside my tradition. And I've looked at their commitment to Bible reading and looked at their, at a, a you know, a black church's commitment to, to weaving a story and, and using the interaction of people to create an event which transforms people. Yeah, so what I hear you saying uh, makes me think about James chapter 3, uh, towards the end of the chapter, uh, right around verse, I guess, 17, 18, it talks about wisdom. And uh, for the, the wisdom that comes from heaven, I'm paraphrasing, but the wisdom that comes from heaven begins with meekness and humility. Absolutely. And, and so what I hear you saying is we need to be humble enough. And another, another way to think about meekness is teachableness, to be teachable. Right. Um, that we need to look to uh, as many gospel-centered sources as we possibly can to bring a depth of, uh, of, of meaning to our preaching again. Absolutely. And I, you know, in my life, um, particularly as a seminary president, uh, I had the opportunity to gain a lot of friends in a broad spectrum of, you know, religious communities. And I call them friends. I call them brothers and sisters. Uh, if we were to compare our doctrine, we'd probably be on polar opposites. But uh, I have learned so much from them. Uh, I have learned, you know, about the Christian calendar, you know. Uh, you know, your, your liturgical friends, whether they're Lutheran or Catherine, whether they talk about, you know, the second Sunday of Lent, and they talk about Ash Wednesday, and they talk about the third Sunday of Advent, and they talk about Epiphany, and all these things. And we, you know, we don't usually do that. But what I've learned is that there is a, a annual cycle of the gospel story that played out in that calendar. And uh, there's something to be said about allowing yourself to be gospel-centered around the sequence of Christ's life and ministry. 
And so I, I've gone to other places. I've been informed by people of other traditions. It has not watered down who I am. It's humbled me. It said, oh, goodness. here I think I have an inside track to God, and I got stuff to learn. That, yeah. can, that can, in a sense, enrich the way I come to preaching God's word. What I'd like you to do is, is give us the other side of the coin and just answer a simple question for us, because we can stay on this same track of, of preaching and how culture has negatively impacted preaching. Um, and I'd like for you to dive in a little bit to the dangers that, that, that are coming uh, to our churches if we do not course correct, if we do not, number one, acknowledge there's an issue, and number two, if we don't do something about it, what's the danger if we don't heed this call? Yeah, I think, you know, um, the danger of um, not, you know, and then I think COVID has been one of those events that has raised a flag that has said, I wonder whether, you know, we should have been, we should be saying, I wonder what this season that has so many restrictions to it can teach us. Uh, you know, we could list a lot of things, but I think that the, the, the piece that has to happen is, you know, is this a moment and we, we need to evaluate ourselves, we need to evaluate our priorities. I think one of the things that I have seen in pastors that I work with here in Oregon is that I've realized that because we can't, you know, we're just getting back now to more public, you know, face-to-face -face services, you know, how was the small group structure, <laughs> the center of our church, how have we missed it on that area? Uh, so that's one of the things that can happen, you know, are, are the pieces that we have put together to make our ministry effective, do they really need evaluating by the Bible, not just by culture and the fact that we had COVID, but have we really created the kind of community that the Bible speaks of? Mm. Uh, uh, an article that I read by um, a Australian pastor from Melbourne, Australia, his name is Mark Sayers. And uh, in Australia, like Europe, uh, tends to have face some of the issues that we're facing before us, okay? And uh, he basically said that we, we need to stop trying to be relevant. <laughs> he says that the church trying to be relevant is going to get steamrolled. And then he said, why? He said, uh, he, used, he did use a sort of a sociological analysis, but he said, can, we can really look at the world through the lens of three cultures. He said that first culture is a culture which looks at the world through supernatural eyes. And uh, that's not just people in the past who were polytheistic. I mean, you look, go around the world, the majority of the world views the world supernaturally. You know, why have Pentecostals grown uh, so vigorously in the majority world? Why? Because we don't have to convince people that Jesus can heal. I mean, they, they believe in the power of the spirits and a, a variety of demonic forces and good forces fighting each other uh, for the betterment of people. So that's the first culture. The second culture is what, what we might say modernity cre uh, uh, created. Uh, it created a world of reason. 
and the world of reason ultimately uh, jettisons God. Okay. But he said, then we live in, we're now in the throes of what he calls a third culture. And the third culture is essentially overthrowing everything that the second culture believed in. So we look at the world, and what do we see? We see a world in which any kind of organizational structure is viewed as the enemy. Corporate structure, law enforcement structure, church structures. If it's part of the past, we need to get rid of it. That is the world we live in. So increasingly, I think the church is going to have to face the fact that we're no longer at the center of American culture. We're being pushed to the side. And we're going to have to, that's reality. Now we can say, hey, we have an American history, you know, we have a Christian history. I couldn't agree more. But the reality is, is that our influence has been marginalized. And we can look at that and we can say, oh, woe is me. You know, there's some days I'm like everybody else. Jesus comes soon. Well, get me out of this mess. Okay. But here's, here's the reality. The reality is that the church of Jesus Christ is growing most vigorously where the church of Jesus Christ is on the margins, where it is persecuted, where it is not the center. Could it be that the world we're living in now that is changing, that this could be our greatest day. Mm. Now, the world may be falling, I mean, it may be falling apart all around us, but could it be that God is calling his church to be more resilient and more powerful than it's ever been before? Now, frankly, to me, that is a flat-out scary thought. I would like to return to some semblance of the way it was, secure, somewhat safe, we have our space and we know where to work, but I don't think that's where we're going to go. And I don't think the enemies of the church are going to be increasingly kind by us just being nice people. I think that uh, the world we face, not only here, not only around the world, but here in North America, we're going to have to get ready to opposition like we've never seen before. And um, how does the church prepare itself for that? By repenting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how does the church prepare itself for that? By realizing that we have become soft, that we have become lukewarm, that we have, in fact, uh, become quite comfortable in our version of Christianity and that the world around us is going to force some choices on people about who will they serve. Uh, that, that's how we respond. We respond with repentance. We respond with, oh God, purify us. That's the starting point. You used at the beginning of our talk, Moses, and when he came down off the mountain and he saw how quickly... Uh, right. the, the people had um, replaced the Lord with an idol. Um, so they were out of Egypt, but Egypt was still inside of them. Exactly. Um, then you used the prophet Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and how they took stands against the culture for the right. And it seemed like every time they would take a stand, they were actually promoted. 
they were they were brought to new levels of higher influence in the culture, even though they did not allow the culture into their hearts. Um, what might be some parallels for us in these days when you think about those stories? You know, uh, I actually, uh, a number of years ago, as I was thinking about this, and I actually did uh, sort of a, a beginning of the school year thing at uh, AGTS, I listed four things that I think we need to do in response to this creeping challenge <laughs> to the church and to its message of the gospel. Um, I think the first thing is, I said, our spirituality will need to be a long obedience. Uh, let me, oh, here, here's the first one. Our evangelism will have to look people in the eye and engage relationally over a period of time. So I don't think we can lob gospel bullets at people and run for cover. I think we actually have to look people in the eye. Uh, evangelism increasingly has become event-oriented as opposed to relationship-oriented. And we're learning around the world, particularly if you work in a Muslim culture, if you work in a Buddhist culture, uh, the only way that you're most likely going to win somebody to the Lord is getting to know them over a protracted period of time. One of the ways that we counteract uh, the kind of cultural challenge is we actually make friends with people and get to know them. They have to be in our house. They have to see how we live. They don't just have to see where we worship. They have to see where we live, how we live. They have to hear us and see us respond to different kinds of crises in our lives. That's the first thing. So relationships, you know, I, I often ask myself uh, and I ask other people. So the truth is the longer we're Christians, the fewer non-Christian friends we have. <laughs> unless we work hard at it, <laughs> unless we intentionally. So how do we respond to this challenge? We respond by intentionally getting to know people unlike ourselves. That has to be, that's part of the gospel. That's part of what we've been empowered to do. You receive power after that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you'll be witnesses in far places and near places. Uh, another thing is our spirituality will need to be a long obedience in the same direction. Spirituality can no longer be about a smile on our face. It has to be about the fact that we know that we may have great opposition and there may be suffering. I think that uh, the world that we live in today is clear indication that we are going to have to have uh, some uh, uh, persecution. Persecution is going uh, is going to come into our lives. So those are just several things that I think we're going to have to do. We're going to have to be much more relational, and we're going to have to realize that uh, opposition is coming at us uh, in full force. I think another thing that we have to do is we have to have communities that redefine the word friend. Um, you know, face-to-face -face interactions are going to have to be recaptured. Uh, you know, we're doing this on virtual reality and it's wonderful to have this kind of tool. Uh, but, 
you know, how did God reveal himself most clearly to humanity? He revealed himself in Jesus Christ in the flesh. And I think that that is the, the theological standard for us when it comes to human relationship. And I think that we're going to have to <clears throat> learn to build new communities that care for people and care for fellow Christians and learn the meaning of friend uh, and not let Facebook define what friend is. And I think another thing that's going to have to happen is we're going to have to reclaim our creeds. And, uh, you know, for us at 16 Fundamental Truths, um, we're going to have to not water those down, but we're going to have to use 21st century words to make those doctrines alive to people. And uh, that is the hard work, I think, of the current generation. So um, how are you going to make God's revelation that is codified in these 16 fundamental truths, how are you going to make come that alive and say, this is the structure under which we live? These are not inhibitors. They are life-giving. They are descriptors of a relationship. They are described, they describe promises. They give us hope. You know, how do we frame those things? That's, that's a great, important part of uh, our future. I, you know, I grew up in an era in which we talked about Pentecostal distinctives. And I understand that, and I'm for that, and I affirm that. But I, I think we're in an era now where the word distinctive needs to be shifted a bit the word affirmation. Uh, so distinctive say, this is what's unique to us. Uh, affirmations say, uh, this is, in a sense, what we affirm as important for all believers. <laughs> okay? So for instance, you know, in, in Pentecostal distinctives, I mean, there are scores of people in the world. In fact, the majority of Christians in the majority world believe in the baptism of the Spirit. So let's talk about affirming the power of the Spirit in the believer's life. Let's talk about that, not as defensive, like we're the only people who do this, but let's talk about it as something that every believer ought to participate in. Yeah, let me, uh, let me jump in here because I think I'm still processing a lot of what you've just said along uh, with uh, our listeners here, because you, you really dropped some, some significant things on us here in these four pieces. And, and really these four pieces are meaty uh, subjects that could, could take up a whole podcast with each one of them. Um, but when you start talking about reclaiming our creeds and communicating those creeds to the next generation in such a way that makes it palatable for them, that started making me think about um, Paul's admonition to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely, and in doing so, you'll save some. Uh, hold fast to your doctrines, he said. Don't let them go. Anchor your life to them. Right. And um, these, these creeds that we have, these beliefs, these core doctrines, these uh, fundamental truths, if you will, even the word fundamental, 
in our culture today. Young people, when they hear fundamental, right. might think fundamentalist or some other thing that has a negative connotation to it. And we might be shooting ourselves in the foot uh, if we're trying to communicate these truths in ways that are antiquated. Um, but I would just like for you to remark, and this is, this is how we're going to have to wrap up our conversation, unfortunately, because we're running out of time. But what, because if I wanted to do that, I'm a 38 year old senior pastor. Um, I'm not in the position of influence, um, corporately, uh, uh, I'm, but I have, uh, an agreement with you. Okay, so I'm not in the position of influence to bring that idea to uh, tables that, that could actually implement this. But I think you and your generation do. And so how would you propose we go about actually implementing what you just said? Because I think if we did that, it would blow things wide open in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, first of all, I would say it's not changing the 16 fundamental truths in terms of what they state. Right. It's about preachers like yourself looking at, you know, each of those and saying, have I preached, you know, a message lately on the return of Jesus Christ? (laughs) What does that mean for us today? Have I preached a sermon lately on God the Father? The ador- we call it the adorable Godhead. Well, you're not going to use that language. But I mean, just things like the Trinity, uh, about <clears throat> vicarious atonement, about, about you know, the, the uniqueness of what Jesus has done. And the fact, you know, in this world, you know, people say there are many, many roads to God. And I would respond by saying there are many roads to God. They all lead through Jesus. Okay. I think that the place we start with this is we start as a preacher looking at that fundamental truth, going down the line, looking at the texts, which in a sense support that, and beginning to say, how can I preach this afresh to myself so that I'm not just saying we believe this, but preach it as if this is a life-giving bit of gospel information that the people in our congregation desperately need. So I think it's the process of preachers giving this a shot, of bringing it alive in their own lives first. You know, I, the, uh, I don't know, you know, I'm not about changing anything, okay? <laughs> I, I affirm those things. I'm about making sure that it's, a, it's, it's preached to folks who don't live in 1960. Right. And I wasn't suggesting that we change anything either, just to be clear. <laughs> I, what I'm suggesting, though, is a, um, to, to find language. Uh, this, is what, this is what missionaries do. This is what missionaries do. Exactly. Missionaries, exactly. missionaries go into a culture. Missionaries enter a culture. They find out how they give and receive information. They find out how they communicate and they translate uh, those gospel truths into language they understand. And just because everyone in this nation or most people in this nation speak language that's English or American doesn't mean we're communicating. And so exactly. um, I guess the, 
what I was trying to get at is um, people in your seat of influence bringing that that lesson to to those or, uh, around the table who make decisions. Um, I think that would be very very important and and very powerful. And I appreciate you so much bringing that up. Relationships have to come to the forefront. Uh, relational evangelism over time, long obedience in the same direction. Uh, you said redefine friends, but the more that you spoke about redefining the, the subject of friendship, it sounded like more like a rediscovery of what true, true biblical friendship is. Absolutely. Yeah, um, right so, so when you talked about communities and friendship and redefining friendship, um, really to me, it was just rediscovering the biblical definition and then reclaiming our creeds and watching our life and doctrine closely so that we can win people. Um, but bringing that doctrine uh, into language that is understandable to perhaps even unsaved people um, or even to saved people who are just unfamiliar with it. Exactly. So I appreciate that, Brother Klaus. What, what uh, last words of encouragement might you give us before we go? You know, I, I, uh, you know, I've uh, thrown a lot of things out. You ask questions, and uh, old enough not to be interested in impressing people anymore. So, I gave you, I gave you some responses. But I, I think that one of the things that I want to do, uh, and I live in a in a part of the country where, you know, this is in your face. This sort of counterculture thing is in your face. Uh, I want, I want to not be a person who is holding on by the skin of my teeth. I want to say, this is the way that most Christians live in the world with great opposition. How is it that we can really find out what the power of the gospel is about? How is it that the Spirit can really empower us day by day to have us open our mouth and words would come that would be, in a sense, just the right words how God can help us encounter folks who have who are filled with anger and violence, and how can we calm that storm, like Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee? How can we calm that storm just just with our presence? Those are the things that I believe are possible, and I look forward to. Not a disenchantment, but a hope that this could be some of our greatest times. Amen. Amen. Brother Klaus, I would like to ask you to uh, wrap us up here the way we began with some prayer. Uh, Lord, um, we've talked about a messy subject and it's, uh, it's uh, something that uh, followers of Jehovah God and followers of Jesus Christ have been working at for thousands of years. And um, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us the realization that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now flowing through us. That you are here among us, working in our midst. I pray you give us courage for this day. Jesus, strong name, I pray. Amen. Friends, we've been with Dr. Byron Klaus, and uh, he has given us some wonderful truths to think about. And I just want to say thank you, Dr. Klaus, for giving us this opportunity and these lessons, it has been tremendous and uh, we're very grateful. Thanks much, see you again.